welcome. Thank you all for listening. This is Building Optimal Radio episode number 20, the big two zero. Today we're interviewing David Gerstel. This is actually the second in a series of interviews with David. The first we talked about bidding versus estimating, and today we're going to be exploring the pros and cons of in-house crews versus subcontractors, and we get into a few other things, but that's the primary theme for today. David has a lot of experience with both, but he always worked in an environment where they had in-house crews, and, and I come from a different world, so it's interesting to see the different perspectives. Uh, hopefully, you guys will enjoy it as much as I did. You talk about how the use of uh, subcontractors outside of the specialty trades has become more popular, how it's a more recent phenomenon as well. What are the uh, pros and cons of having a company that subs everything out versus having several functions in-house? Well, I don't know that there is a, uh, an absolute pro and con you know, that. I don't know that there's a apply to you know give you a, an answer one way or the other. I would say that the choice is uh, maybe best determined by a what you know what path has brought you into construction, and b what your personal goals are. I think subcontracting everything has this advantage: it protects you from being unskilled at estimating because the estimating falls upon your subs. Now, you do have to still be good at getting your subs to give complete estimates, but that's very doable using a technique that I suspect we'll be getting to that, that I have evolved for my own you know, operation. Having everything sub does lift from your shoulders a burden of estimating to considerable extent. And I think if you come into construction from a direction other than the trades, um, other than having been a, a carpenter and a pretty advanced carpenter, I mean serious journeyman, you know, six years at least, uh, you're probably going to find it difficult to accurately estimate the cost of work done by in-house crews or handling uh, all aspects of carpentry, foundation, frame, and finish. So you, you might be best off protecting yourself by going the subcontractor route. And that's certainly a very popular route now. I know guys who do bathroom models who, you know, everything's subbed. <laughs> It kind of boggles me. When I started out, you know, guys who, who just subbed everything were known as paper contractors. It was a somewhat derisive term, and they could they had a hard time getting insurance. Uh, insurance companies looked askance on them. They thought these guys, you know, they just use subs. They don't know how to build. We don't want to insure them. Yeah, I, th I think you refer to them as paper contractors in your book, which I got a I got a kick out of because at least in the Texas market now, and we've got. What I, four major metro markets? I I think that the idea of of in house crews is is th there are some people who do it, but it's very very rare compared to subcontracting most everything out. And the builders that I know who do have uh, in house crew, it's not necessarily an in house crew. It might be one in house trim carpenter or, or yeah. something, you know, something like that. But in terms of like having your own in house crew, that that will actually go do the rough frame on a house that's almost unheard of in my market. But it's fascinating to me because I always think about it just as a way to go against the grain and do something different. Are there any functions that you feel are best to keep in-house if someone is going that route? I realize there's probably a ton of it depends to that, but I, I don't know. Is there anything in your mind? 
for me, the plus side of having a crew is that is joy um, and profit. And I'll explain both. And I'm a carpenter. I can't imagine. I would have no interest in doing a job that I wasn't going to at least have my crew, you know, build a foundation for, or build a frame for, or build, do the finish work for. That's to me, that's, you know, that's so that's soul food. And I love doing it myself. A couple of weeks from now, I'm going to go out and completely take apart and rebuild a deck on one of my properties. I'm going to do it alone. It's wonderful work. <laughs> it's, I love being out on the job site alone with my tools or with my crew. So there's joy and there's profit. And let me explain it this way. Every time you get a sub bid, if the sub knows what he's doing as a business person, he's got overhead and profit worked in. Well, if you put your own crew out there, you can figure the direct cost for your crew and you can add overhead and profit to that just as your subs for foundation or frame and finish would do if they were, you know, going to be handling the foundation and the frame and the finish. And then you add another layer of overhead and profit for your company, just as you would if you were just subbing everything. So there's money to be made. And I, I made a lot of money, especially on bigger jobs on foundations and frames uh, because we would charge for our foundations and frames at, at, a, at a price that was lower than it would have cost us to sub them out, but still at a price that actually turned out to be pretty juicy. It turned out we were darn good at building foundations and frames. I'd watch how my crew performed relative to the subspecialist next door. We'd beat them. And we'd beat them in time. We'd beat them in quality. So that was very lucrative for us. Finish work was not. <laughs> we were lucky to stay within our estimate on finish work. My guys are pretty compulsive about finish work, about <laughs> everything. But in finish work, it did tend to run the bill up. So we we do okay there. We wouldn't really harvest any gravy. So joy and joy and profit, man. That's a reason for having a crew. I mean, family. Some of the closest friends I have in life are the guys that and gals in a few cases who were on my crew for years and years you know they keep up with the old man i like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i can see it it's a different world from what i'm used to here yeah. I, I i i've personally explored the decision you know one thing for anybody who's thinking about it out there i, I don't know if this is if this is the best way to look at it but when you have everything subbed out there's there's a part of the, the soul of the construction process that detaches and so to have some of those functions in-house, again, that's not that's not a reason to do it. But I, I have thought that like if we had in-house trim or whatever, the, the salesman, the branding part of me feels like I could use that as a value proposition to our, our clients in a market where, where everybody yes. else has it subbed out. I think so. So just a, just a consideration for anybody who's thinking about that. Not trying to push anybody in that direction because they're pros and cons but what about this so when we are deciding between bringing a crew in-house as opposed to managing that function through a subcontractor how can we arrive at the best decision what what are i guess like for you what are the key questions that you would be asking yourself to arrive at, at that decision to me personally jared it's not a decision i would have no interest in being a builder who subbed everything it just isn't a it's just not where the romance and the joy is for me. And I'm from the 60s, man. I mean, we, those of us from the 60s who are like myself, who had the, you know, who could have gone other paths, could have gone into white collar professions, for example, 
in my case, could have said yes to the guy who wanted to nominate me for a Rhodes Scholarship and gone off to Oxford. We became, we got into the trades because it seemed romantic and wonderful and joyful, and I still feel that way about it. I mean, I think it's very important to run your business in a business-like way and to make money, and because otherwise the business will collapse and you won't be able to take care of your clients or much less your family. But it's a, it's an important scaffolding support the work you do out in the field, and that's what really matters. The work you do and the care that you give your clients and your crew, that's what really matters. Looking back on my career, and I've been at this a long time, you know, what I really cherish are memories of jobs that we did that made a real difference in the lives of our clients that brought them joy. What I really cherish are the friendships and the relationships that have endured with the people who were on my crew for years and years. You know, I don't think I've asked you this yet, but uh, so you have your crew, you had your your business. I'm assuming you had one crew on average at, at any given time. Were you primarily doing custom homes, meaning, you know, projects for, for fees for clients, or were you doing spec homes? Well, first of all, I typically had two or three jobs going at a time. I had, you know, basically three crews or two crews. I really preferred just two crews. That was a very relaxed life for me. My guys were so damn good. I really only had to work about 15 hours a week, you know, running the company. And that freed me up to, you know, write books, do carpentry, for fun. But we, I, I was not in the spec house business. I mean, I have built properties, but I keep them, um, you know, instead of selling them. I, I get too attached to them. I don't want to let anybody, anybody have them. So I keep them and rent them out. <laughs> and uh, we did a vast range of work. I mean, everything from small bridges and little, you know, garden structures to, uh, total reconstruction of very large, very complicated houses, jobs that took 18 months. And in between, occasional new home or addition, you know, now then a kitchen remodel. But you would keep two crews employed and, and you were good enough on the operating side to keep those two crews busy for most of the time, keep them pretty close to capacity. All of the time, virtually. I mean, we would now and then have a two or three week dead zone. And what I would, then we always had requests to do little tiny jobs. Um, and I would just set the guys up to do those jobs independently for an owner to, you know, bridge that gap. Yeah. Okay. So you would, you would fill in gaps as necessary. And uh, I mean, how does, having never had in-house crews, how does that work? If one's, if you got a few weeks where one's inactive, are there usually kind of odd jobs at, at the other crew's site where they can kind of work hand-in-hand uh, hand doing doing things, or how would you fill those gaps? Well, three ways. You've described one way very nicely. You know, if we had a really big project going, and I would say to the lead, Dave, you know, Fred's um, wrapping up here, and it's three weeks till his next job starts. Um, use a little extra help over here. And if the guy said, yeah, I, you know, Fred would come over, or some of his crew would come over. Alternately, I would find these little side jobs, you know, maybe I remember once um, we had a three week lag between jobs because of the, well, for various reasons, doesn't matter. The Jewish Community Center had called me up and asked me if I could add a little renovation at their, their place. And I said, well, you know, I'll just send 
Fred and Dave will come over and they'll do it for you and it'll be a little less expensive for you because you won't have to pay our, our markups and you'll get great work because they're the guys who do the work. And they went over and worked for three weeks and had a, had a good time and uh, came back. <laughs> Actually, what happened was they came back and they said to me, these guys have been working for me 10 years at that point. They came back and they said, man, that was hard. We never realized how much you did for us. <laughs> We're going to be more appreciative in the future. <laughs> I, I love that. But yeah, I would set them up with side jobs. And, you know, sometimes they said, great, I want to go camping. I'll see you in three weeks. Go. <laughs> Let me ask you one other thing on the in-house crew topic, because again, it's just so foreign to me. How do you, I mean, if you are building a crew, how do you go about hiring and attracting that talent to get your, your lead, your journeyman, your labor? I mean, there's probably no secret to it, but I got to ask. It's a good question. And it's particularly germane now because you hear people complaining all over, all over the country about labor shortage. I'm going to answer that question by talking about this labor, labor shortage stuff. You know, when I, when I hear about the labor shortage, and I see articles about it all the time. I keep running across this figure. 60% of the builders in the country are saying they can't find enough labor. And once I saw an article that said, you know, gave a higher figure than that. But that's kind of the typical figure. Well, what I'm thinking right away is, well, what about the other 40%? They're not complaining about not being able to find labor. What about the other 20% that's not complaining at all? Why are they finding good labor and the other guys can't get enough people on their jobs? And here's my hypothesis about that. The guys who are finding labor, they run what I call an employee-centered company, which brings me to the answer you were looking for, I think, or that you're asking me to produce. The way you attract good labor is when you build, you build a company that's not just client-centered, that, isn't, that doesn't emphasize fairness to your clients very strongly, you also build an employee-centered company, a company that's built around providing a good work life for your employees. And what a good work life includes, not in any particular order, is fair pay, uh, even better yet, top pay for whatever the person's skill level is. Big, big item, respect, respect. You know, you don't go to your job sites and grind on your people. or You go to them and you say, damn, Jim, you did a nice job on that. Or, Jim, that looks like, that looks like that's going really well. I got an idea I'd like to give you about, you know, that might make use of as you go further with this work you're doing. It'll be all right? Oh, sure. Tell them. You give them um, latitude. You give them autonomy. You know, you don't go to your job site and tell your lead how he's supposed to run the job. You've trusted him with the job, trusted him with the job, and you let him run it his way. Now, you may ask him questions and say, you know, here's a, an approach that I think might be useful for you, Fred. What do you think? But you let him make the decisions. Once somebody's good enough to to be a lead, and once you've tried him on a few jobs and he's doing it well or she's doing it well, she's handling that job, you respect his authority. So fair pay, respect, autonomy, those are big, those are big components of the, that the employee-centered company really emphasizes. And you run an employee-centered company, you won't have trouble finding labor. You won't have trouble finding labor in this market, in my opinion. Now, and that opinion is based on, admittedly, a very small sample. When I started hearing about this labor shortage stuff, 
I called up a bunch of guys that I know around here who do run employee-centered companies and have for years, who really, really respect crafts, good craftsmanship, who treat people with respect instinctively, who offer autonomy, who do the best they can to pay their guys really well to offer good compensation. They don't have any trouble finding workers. I never had any trouble. You know, I put up an ad and guys would call and they, you know, maybe they knew about my company. You know, they know, they, my, my, my lead guys, my journey level people, even my apprentices would tell their friends who are in construction, man, if you ever get a chance to work in this company, you ought to, because Dave, he's a son of a bitch, but he does treat us with respect and, and we get good pay and he's fair and we've always got work. Did you also do a, a 410 work week? So 40 hours over four days? Uh, actually, nine and a half hour days, but yeah. That's a great attraction to guys. I always used to joke that, you know, that's why my guys put up with me because nobody else was offering the four day work week and they loved it. It's a great, it's a much better way of life because you get, you, know, you get that long weekend. Really, with a four day work week, your week divides exactly, almost exactly in half. Half the week, during half the week you're working and the other half of the week you're off. It's great. Yeah. Well, that employee centered company is similar to Southwest Airlines, is probably the most famous company I can think of that does that. And yeah, they put their employees first and, and, and you can see what happens to their customer satisfaction rate just because they got happy employees that are serving their customers. I didn't know that, but I never fly with anybody but Southwest. And part of the reason is it's obvious the employees are enjoying being on, being on the job. This may be a stupid question, but how did you, uh, how did you manage your, your jobs? Was your, was your crew lead the effectively your construction form and your, your, your entire project manager, or did you have somebody that also was just more on the administrative side in terms of scheduling and coordinating and quality control? No, 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 nobody else. There was no staff in my company except me and, and, uh, and, you know, 12, 15 hours a week of a of bookkeeping, of a, you know, of a, independent bookkeeper um you know my leads i mean my leads started with me as apprentices i trained them as carpenters and i said you know you're ready to run jobs let's give it a try and at first i was on their job every day for a, a while not all day but for a while you know teaching them how to run a job and if they showed they had aptitude for it i gave them a longer and longer leash and pretty soon you know, if I wanted to, I could go away for a month and I knew nothing would go wrong. They'd probably do a better job than with me around. <laughs> you know, I'd be sitting there away. So, uh, you know, they, they ran the job. You know, they made sure the subs were there on time. They, they did subcontract notification. They did the, the detailed takeoffs and ordered the material. They supervised the apprentices. They, they allocated work to their journeymen. Uh, they related to the clients. The only thing that I... I kept in my hand was change order writing. The, the lead's job was to notify me when there was a change order necessary, and I wrote it. Mostly because it was too hard on them. They grew to love their customers, and they just couldn't bear to tell their customers, you know what, you got $10,000 worth of rot repair we're going to have to do. So I would do that. And I, I would go to each of my jobs twice a week walk around the job, look at it really, really closely, because I love looking at the work. I'd even do a few chores. I'd sweep up a room, move some lumber, bang a few nails. 
you know, joke around with my employees and be one of the guys for a while. But then I would I would go to the lead and say, look, shall we go over our questions? And he'd say, yeah, let's do it. I'd say, who go, you want to start? You want me to start? He'd say, oh, I'll, go my, I'll do my questions first. And he'd pull out a list of questions that he developed since the last time he'd seen me and we'd go over them. And then I'd go over my questions and observations and be done, be on my way. Yeah, well, I think showing up on the job site like what you did is critical for a business owner to do to stay, keep connected to the team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me transition to a little different question then. Um, with a lot of people using primarily subcontractors now, we are in a hot market in my part of the country and in a lot of parts of the country. And, and there are subcontractors the prices are going up and time to get out on the job sites going up just because all of them have more work than they know what to what to handle and and really it's not so much on them it's yeah i'll talk to them and they'll say well you know it's that it's so hard for us to get the guys that are actually swinging the hammers now you know yeah. they're, they're getting i mean <laughs> they've got you know competing subcontractors pulling up with a van on their property you know, on other guys' properties offering them two bucks more an hour and they go jump in. You know, it's it's a, I mean, it's kind of a free-for-all in a sense in some markets right now. Uh, do you have any magic bullets for how to create better subcontractor relationships to make sure that, you know, you're still getting good treatment, good response times, et cetera? Well, I think it's the same answer in a way as the, question you asked about employees. I think these are vital questions. I mean, they're far from stupid. They're central. I, I don't think you make adjustments during a time of crisis like this and get results. You have to have built, you know, a trade partner. I love that phrase, trade partners. It's so respectful. Uh, a trade partner-centered company. I mean, you know, I my subs worked on our jobs over and over and over. We had an A-team, and we called them on every job. Now, now and then, we'd have to say to a sub, you know, the work's fairly simple here, and we got a tight budget, and we're going to have to go get a B-grade guy. I hate it, but we're going to have to do it. That happened very rarely. I mean, I explained to clients the drawbacks of not using our A-team, and they went for the A-team. I mean, remember, they'd chosen us because they wanted to work with us. They weren't asking us to give them a free bid. They'd paid for our pre-construction services. They wanted our guidance. And we created a, you know, we had a, a trade partner-centered company. I mean, I admire the hell out of my, my trade partners. These guys are, the, the, you know, we worked with they were fabulous craftsmen. They were great guys. They loved the trades. They were, in some cases, okay business people and others quite good business people and others. The business was a little bit of a struggle for them, but they were with us. I mean, I, they... They never, and they treated their people well. You see, it, it. They all they had employee centered companies. They didn't lose their key guys. And when we told them, we need you on the job now, they were there. I, I don't think I ever had any. Uh, I can't remember at least. Oh, it must have happened at some point, but I don't remember off the top uh, experience of a sub not showing up when we needed them. I mean, maybe they say, "Can you give me an extra day?" Of course, we'll give you an extra day. You know, we're, we're a trade partner center company. If you need an extra day, we'll give it to you. I mean, if you have to, we'll, we'll give you a few extra days. But that, that didn't ha tend to happen. Here's why. The trade partners were involved in the pre-construction work. In other words, they helped develop the estimate 
from the very early stage of the, of the pre-construction work, from preliminary drawings on. And they knew they'd do that without charge because they knew almost for sure we'd get the job and they'd be part of it. Then when we got the job, when we signed the contract, I'd call them and say, well, we signed for this job. We're going to start work in six months um, and we're going to need you in seven and a half months, you know, on October 13th, 2019. I say, fine, we'll put you on the schedule. And then as we got closer to the day we actually needed them, we'd give them revised notifications. You know, we'd notify them three months out, literally. We'd notify them a month out. And then we'd notify them three weeks out, two weeks out, five days out, three days out. I sometimes did that myself. Um, you know, I would take that burden off my leads. When I was out of the job, I'd say, look, let me, let's check the subcontractor notifications. I'll make a few phone calls for you if you like. I'd say, sure. And then, then the guys would show up. Was, they were, you know, they knew they were due on October 19th or 2019, and they'd be there. So I think the trick, if that is a trick, is just the, the, the respect of letting people know that you're going to need them, that, you know, they've got a contract with you to perform, and you're going to need them at a certain time. You, it's just not even, you don't even have to say, I expect you to be there, and they're going to be there. And they value you. They're, you know, if, if it's a choice between taking care of you and two other guys who, who treat them like shit, they're going to take care of you. I, I, I had a number of times the experience of subcontractors telling me they worked for a lot of generals who would call them up the day before they needed them. No notification, no prior notification at all. And expect them to be there. That's ludicrous. It's very, very disrespectful. Uh, and they also had generals all the time call them up and say, we need you tomorrow. And they'd show up at the job, and the job wasn't ready for them. And that was expensive for them. So you, you had to respect them financially. You had to respect them. And you had to respect their financial requirements. You had to have the job ready for them when you got them to the job. You couldn't say, oh, would you guys cool your heels for three hours while we put in some extra framing so you could, you know, mount your whatevers. Uh, no, you can't do that. you got to be ready for them. You got to show them the respect of letting them know well in advance when you're going to need them. Then you've got a trade partner centered company, and during times like this, those guys will perform for you. You'll be you'll be their, if not their number one priority, one of a number of the builders that they want to make sure they take care of, um, because they're going to need you when things aren't so good, and they know that. And if they're not smart enough to know that, you don't want them to be your trade partner. Because they're going to be out of business if they're not smart enough to know that in due course. Yeah, I think that's a good take. I think you you hit one of the most important points straight on with that, just in terms of uh, respecting their their time. There's so, so many people, especially the. Yeah, I, I guess it's a, maybe the people who are a little younger in the business think that they or, or they don't think uh, about this, and they just expect that the trade partner will show up the next day. And that's obviously a very self-centered approach that, that isn't going to buy you any favors long-term. So I'm with you on that. It probably took me a while to figure it out. I mean, I'm sure when I was a young builder, I, I didn't know a lot of the things that I've suggested today. And, and I probably was fortunate to run into really seasoned old, old hands who were willing to share their wisdom and learning with me. I didn't, invent, I didn't invent these ideas, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, th- this is a uh, this David is actually a great segue or uh, uh, opener into our our next episode together, where we're going to be talking about building better subcontractor relationships. So we'll wrap this section up here, and I appreciate your time. We'll we'll be uh, we'll be back for this uh, this part three. 